Hello, everyone, and welcome to Polarities. Today, I'm interviewing David Fry, an historian and archaeologist who recently published a book called Walls, A History of Civilization in Blood and Brick. It's a really interesting book, and the scope of this book is really well beyond just talking about walls, but really talking about the whole history of civilization from ancient Mesopotamia to the present, and using the role of walls as a way of telling that story. And the central thread of this book is rather counterintuitive, but one of those ideas that you realize makes an incredible amount of sense in hindsight, that walls were long associated not with the militarization of society, but the exact opposite. So in the ancient world, walls ensured that a civilization no longer had to be militaristic. So the birth of walls also sees the birth of culture and of uh, specialization, of trade, and that kind of thing. This is a really interesting conversation, and while I didn't intend it this way, it's a bit of a counterpoint to the last interview I posted with Douglas Massey. Massey talks a lot about the invention of the border in the abstract, but David Fry's work, while he does emphasize all these symbolic meanings that have been grafted onto walls, and particularly in the 20th century and beyond, he does tend to stress here the material reality of walls. They're things of brick or stone or mud, they're not just metaphorical constructs. And I should clarify something that I say in this interview when I talk about how I think Trump's border wall is less of a physical reality than a symbol. And I don't know if it comes across that way, but I didn't mean that as some kind of postmodern voodoo or whatever. I mean that in the same way that the threats of the 21st century are so much more abstract and kind of exist in this virtual space in a way, so do walls themselves, in particular Trump's wall and, and how that's defined, and the amount of semantics and rhetoric that go behind it. I'm not really sure if our seeming disagreement here is really just semantic itself, but it is an interesting conversation to have. I think that David's work is important even as it resists easy political analogies, and maybe even because of that. Like, one of the most valuable contributions I think a book could make to such a politically loaded subject is to not approach it in that way and not to neutralize it or make it apolitical, but to show that, you know, sometimes the greatest lesson you can take from the past is that you shouldn't just freely lift episodes from history as analogies for what's happening now, which I will confess I'm sometimes prone to do, and you might hear parts of this interview where I'm prone to do that. I think the better lesson here is to see how much one object, even something as concrete and basic as a wall, can transform in meaning over time. So walls are sometimes called monuments of fear, as the book points out, and I think that the types of things that we were afraid of in the distant past are very different from what we're afraid of in the present, and I think that bears keeping in mind quite a lot when we're talking about history. Anyway, enjoy David Fry. David Fry, welcome to Polarities. Thank you, Joe. I wanted to start looking at your book and talking about this theme that comes up so many times. And I think it's it might be kind of surprising, I think, to people unfamiliar with history. And there's kind of an easy association between walls and this kind of brute militarism. But your history shows how the opposite is true. You know, walls are part of what you call the grand bargain of civilization. So I was wondering if you could talk about that. And, and you trace it back to the Epic of Gilgamesh, which I think is kind of a mm -hmm. good place to start. 
we see hints of the theme already turning up as early as uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh. But, you know, I, I certainly think it, it's, its roots are much older than that and go back to prehistory. You know, essentially going, going back to the question of, of militarism that you just raised, when I was researching the history of walls, one thing I, I, I consistently found was the, to borrow the name of your podcast, the extreme polarity, you know, between those who uh, lived inside, you know, walled cities and, and those who sort of lived in an unwalled state uh, outside. And, uh, you know, the more I saw these two different types of, of societies, you know, the more obvious their differences became. It was like looking at an experimental group and a control group. In the unwalled societies, there was a sense of insecurity where every man was trained to be a warrior uh, in order to hopefully keep the community safe. And, and this is something that you found in societies all over the planet on, you know, really, I think on every inhabited continent that the boys would be raised from a very early age to think of themselves as warriors and they would be toughened and tested and they would be, you know, beaten with sticks and poked at with spears and pushed into bees nests. They would be forced to undergo vision quests. All this designed to toughen them up and, and make them more into soldiers. It was really the adoption of walls that, that gradually brought an end to that. Walls didn't require large bodies of trained warriors. Walls could be defended by men who were unskilled in weapons, uh, and they didn't even have to be brave or even young. I mean, you know, I can show you uh, pots from ancient Greece where you, you have paintings of graybeards like me defending the walls uh, in the case of a siege. So the adoption of walls alleviated the need for all of that military training and, and in effect, all of that militarism. So that, that was one of the great takeaways that I picked up when I was doing the research for this book, that it was uh, very much the opposite, I think, of uh, what most people would have expected. Mm. And there's this attitude and it persists. It seems like every culture you write about, whether they're inside or outside the walls, is that walls make you soft. That's right. Uh, that was a universal attitude. And that was the one, you know, you mentioned the Gilgamesh epic earlier. You can see that attitude as, as early as we have literature, really. And you can see it in the Gilgamesh epic and you can see it in the Old Testament. And you can certainly see it in the writings of the classical Greeks and Romans. Uh, you know, there was this sense that living behind walls had softened and enervated uh, men to some degree. And that was very much an attitude that you also encounter amongst the people that lived outside the wall. So it was kind of a universal. Can you extrapolate something about the natural course of history by looking at that, that maybe civilizations become weaker in complacency? I mean, even beyond looking at just physical walls and their effect on civilization, is it true that there's kind of a stereotype about, for example, ancient Rome that the decadence sort of fed into its demise. And, and you see that in other people talk about America that way nowadays, even. Right. You could even look at climate change or ecological disasters in that way, because we're, we kind of had this attitude that we've mastered the environment, but in a way we're becoming more vulnerable as a result. 
Well, it is all tied together. I mean, the attitude that you're talking about, the sense that to broaden it out, that, that not simply walls, but civilization itself has softened us, that it's weakened us in some ways, uh, that it's made us less virtuous than those who live in something closer to a, a state of nature. That is an attitude that has been around since the beginning of civilization. Again, I mean, I would say you could take that back to the Gilgamesh epic or the Old Testament if you wanted to. And a lot of people, uh, incidentally, have the false impression that that is uh, an idea, that, let's call it the notion of the noble savage, that originated during the Enlightenment at the time of Rousseau. And then, you know, that's just frankly untrue. It's a much, much older attitude than that. And you could certainly uh, extend it, I think, you know, as far as you wanted, um, this, this notion of primitivism, the notion that civilization softens us, that you were talking about climate, you know, the, the sense that we are used to our 70 degree homes. We're used to air conditioning and central heat. We have trouble dealing with the extremes of weather. You know, it was one of the boasts that people that lived outside walls would typically make over the years, you know, like uh, when uh, Ariovistus, the, the German leader, was having a parlay with, with Caesar. While Caesar was in Gaul, he was boasting that our men haven't slept under a roof in, you know, over 10 years. And that was a point of pride. It was to demonstrate, you know, how, how much tougher they were. And do you think in any way that connects to the point you bring up a few times, which is that there was a theory that was really persistent through a lot of academic history and anthropology that uncivilized people were pacifists and that war really started with, with civilization. Well, that's interesting. That particular dogma is not ancient. The ancient primitivists certainly believed that civilization had softened them, but they also, what they admired about the uncivilized was the warlike militaristic nature of those people. They, they admired them for being more courageous and more virile, more virtuous. It's only much later that uh, you, you start to see the idea that the outsiders, the uncivilized, are virtuous in another way, that they are peaceful, that they represent humankind before original sin, in a way. And you see that, I think, really taking root with the early encounters between uh, Europeans and native North Americans. You see that, you know, sort of in the attitude of not just early Spanish writers, but French writers and English writers and and, you know, it had reached the point that, you know, by the 1700s, if you were uh, writing any sort of uh, travel guide, that you had to have your section where you praise the pacifism and nobility of the noble natives. So that was a very common attitude that really took root around that time. Attitudes like that are, are rarely built or, or constructed on uh, any sort of dependable evidence. And in this case, they certainly weren't. And so when an attitude is, is premised more or less on faith, it, it actually can become uh, much more deeply rooted than something that's more rational. You document walls pretty much everywhere that civilization grows up. And then there's that one exception, which is Sparta. I don't know if there's any way we can really know or theorize why a culture like Sparta might reject leisure or art or philosophy or culture. Do we have any idea why that happened? 
Well, what we have are the ancient writers who give us their testimony on the Spartans, and they give us, um, you know, a, a, a mythical uh, account of how the, the Spartans adopted their lifestyle under uh, a leader named Lycurgus, and that that account uh, seems to be somewhat anachronistic. But what it suggests is that at some point the Spartans, perhaps in the name of an earlier leader, Lycurgus, adopted this lifestyle, adopted this very militaristic lifestyle. And I think it was based on, you know, the very attitudes that we've just been discussing, based on the notion that people who live behind walls, people who lived in cities and in civilization had been softened and that the Spartans didn't want to be a part of that. You know, we're told that, you know, the Spartan army might be marching past uh, a, a walled city and that, you know, someone in the Spartan army would point at the walled city and say, oh, what sort of women live there? Not referring to the women, of course, but Referring to the men, the sort of men who would trust in walls rather than in their own courage for their defense. And it, and it shows the attitude that they had. So the Spartans elected not to build city walls. They patterned themselves after, after outsiders, but I think more specifically, they felt like they were patterning themselves after their own ancestors. It was a very kind of, uh, I guess you could say, a regressive or reactionary state. They're kind of going back to what they viewed as the past. And so they reject the luxuries of civilization or what they define as the luxuries of civilization, all these things that they felt softened men, you know, and it, it's an odd list, too. It's a long list of the sort of things that the, the Spartans rejected, including, you know, in general, things like baths. <laughs> you know, if you can imagine thinking that taking a bath would make you less of a soldier. But, you know, I think they, uh, you know, they wanted to keep their boys, you know, dirty and hungry and cold until uh, until they were tough enough. How do you assess whether walls work or whether they function as they're supposed to? And I mean, not just in terms of keeping people safe, but also keeping a civilization intact if you're looking at it in a broader way. I don't think, you know, when you ask, does a wall work or did a wall work? You really need to be to look first at what was the intention of the wall builder. And so the intentions were not generally too broad. These ancient walls, you know, the ancient city walls and then uh, the imperial walls built by Romans and Persians and Chinese and the like. These were built for the purpose of defense and they were defended by large numbers of troops. You know, if you want to ask about the effectiveness of walls, that's you know what you need to look at first. In general, were walls effective? I think you have to say yes. We've been building walls for 10,000 years and, you know, not repeating the activity because it's something that never works. You could not possibly count the number of times that a walled city was saved from annihilation by its walls. Ask Attila the Hun, you know, what he thought of city walls after, you know, they more or less stymied his uh, invasion of the Roman Empire in the 5th century. Of course, we have instances of them failing, but we have instances of, you know, more or less anything failing. The border walls, I think, are not quite so successful as the city walls historically. However, in general, I think border walls had a better military record than they're often given credit for. You know, one of the things that you have to remember is that when a wall is quietly going about doing its job, it doesn't make the news. And if it doesn't make the news, it doesn't make history. So 
It's only when a wall is is overrun or skirted around or when its defenders betray the state that they're defending and allow invaders through. It's only when something like that happens that, you know, a wall tends to make history. You know, you look at Hadrian's Wall in England and, you know, and it's built in the, uh, the early 120s A.D. And it really you don't hear another peep about it for another uh, 50 or 60 years. And it's only then that we hear that a northern army has uh, overrun it. And we don't know the details of how that happened, whether they were let through or whether uh, it was an area that would have been left undefended by the Romans. But what we can say is for 50 or 60 years, it seems to have been more or less doing its job. I've also noticed, even in your accounts of history, that sometimes a failure is not that the wall didn't work, but that the effort was so great that the cost wasn't worth it. I wrote down what you mentioned about the 7th century Emperor Yang in China, that you said that the Chinese people weren't interested in vilifying foreign enemies and instead united against the emperor who made them build it. And I think that does get into, I'm trying not to overread that, but contemporary issues about whether the political ploy of vilifying foreigners and the incredible costs of walling them out, what kind of effect that might have. And I'm always happy to allow my readers to read in whatever they like in terms of contemporary issues. Um, uh, Personally, when I'm writing about the Emperor Yang, I'm writing about the Emperor Yang, and I'm not trying to make a broader political so I should make I should make that point clear because you know that's not the case with every author. So I, I do think it's it's worth saying. But yeah, that was in fact a common theme, and I, I want to clarify too that that was a common theme with these great imperial border walls, the ones that would you know stretch on for hundreds of miles out on some frontier. It was not a common theme for the city walls. There was a time for most of human history when a city was a thing with walls, and virtually every city was walled. And it was an ordinary part of the urban landscape. The border walls were another thing altogether. Obviously, there were a lot of border walls for which uh, it's very difficult to find any sort of sources. But particularly in China, what you find is that, of course, the, the Chinese did this on such a grand scale, you know, a much, much larger scale than anything that even uh, the Romans and the Persians did. And it, it required uh, an immense investment of labor something that the Chinese peasants never forgot. And so generations of Chinese peasants would add to the stock of lore of men being dragooned from their homes and forced into these labor corvées to work on the walls of the emperors. They would write poems and songs where they would say things like, if your son was born by the wall, don't raise him. Or the wall was built of cries of of pain and sadness. The wall was made of mud and men, things like that. So there was this tremendous resentment by an uprooted peasantry that was pulled from the south of China and forced to relocate to the north and build these walls and, and then stay there and support the troops. There was tremendous resentment there. And this is a broader question to lead us more into the 20th century. You write about how at a certain point, walls stopped becoming effective as a way of keeping out invaders. 
And in the 20th century, walls became these kind of grand symbols. I mean, you talk about the the Maginot line and the Berlin Wall in Europe. Let's start with the basics. You know, a wall is just an object. And like any other object, it can be viewed as a symbol of anything by anyone at any time. That doesn't mean that the wall was intended to be uh, a symbol. And it doesn't mean that the wall is viewed as a symbol of the same thing by different people or at different times. So let's talk about the Berlin Wall for a second. Now, here was a wall that was constructed in 1961 by the East German government, the communist East German government, which was having a real problem with its own citizens fleeing to the West. In fact, it appears that Eastern Europe had lost a neighborhood of 4 million citizens to the West in the 16 years since, since the end of the Second World War. And so uh, the economy was in terrible shape, and they hoped that by locking their citizens in, they might prevent further economic decline. So because the rest of the borders had already been walled, you know, they, uh, they already had physical manifestations of the Iron Curtain running along the borders of Hungary and East Germany, Berlin was the last hole in the dike through which uh, people could easily escape. They could escape from East Berlin into West Berlin quite easily. I mean, people were doing their daily shopping, crossing from one side to the other. So in 1961, they put a wall around West Berlin, West Berlin, which was completely inside East Germany, so that East Germans couldn't get into West Berlin anymore, so they couldn't escape the regime. And that was their, what they intended as the function for building that wall. That wall became almost immediately viewed in the West as a symbol for the evils of communism, a system so terrible that it had to imprison its own citizens. The Berlin Wall lasted 28 years, and in 1989 was finally brought down. Now, after 1989, what happens? Well, we celebrate it for a few days, a week or so. After that, we stopped thinking about it for a little while. They tried to make documentaries about it and discovered that they were ratings poison, and uh, it was kind of forgotten. But then the Berlin Wall came down in 1989, and, and that was the end of history, right? I mean, isn't that the... Yeah, right. <laughs> Right, 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 right. Yeah, that's what all the articles were saying in the early 90s. And then in recent years, it's been, the memory of it has been revived. In particular, after 2015 and the announcement of the candidacy of Donald Trump in the United States, uh, the memory of the Berlin Wall has been invoked quite a bit in this country. But here's the interesting thing, Joel. People now talk about the Berlin Wall as a symbol for the evil of all walls. Very few people remember it now as a symbol for the evils of communism. Now, when that wall was constructed, the leaders of East Germany were not intending to construct a wall that would be the symbol for the evils of communism. Far less were they attempting to construct a symbol for the evil of all walls. I think some people understand that things are are viewed as symbols, and then they come to think of them as just symbols and being nothing more, being intended as symbols. And that's not really the case. The symbolism of an object is always a fleeting and relative thing. I think that, yeah, certainly I, I shouldn't suggests that these very real walls that accomplished real functions were primarily symbolic. But I do think that 
and maybe this is my perspective, that the symbolic function is really, really prominent when it comes to Trump's real or proposed border wall. And I feel like it's this really interesting case. And you highlight all the hypocrisies and sort of political repositioning going on with regard to that. But I think there is a wall, but it wasn't called that. And it tends to be talked about as if it's a brand new idea. And for Trump, you know, it's either something that's already half finished or it's something he's going to start, but the Democrats are stopping him from doing it. And meanwhile, you already have hundreds of miles of, of border fencing and walls along the border. And I'm wondering if you think that that really, like the function of that wall is really as an idea um, and not so much as a physical structure. No, I wouldn't say that. I think it's very much intended to be a physical structure. You know, how, how tall are the new sections? 30 feet, 40 feet, something like that. Now, I think it's very much intended to be a physical structure. I mean, I mean, there's a very big difference between something that's intended to be a useful object and something that is intended to be uh, simply uh, a symbol. There aren't a lot of things that are intended to be simply symbols. An example of that would be a flag. You know, you can say, you know, you want to wrap yourself in the flag, but, you know, look, let's give you an analogy that would pertain to walls, for example. If you imagine that, you know, you're out in some public place and suddenly there's a shooter and you need cover and you need cover quickly. And you've got you've got two choices. One is you can dive behind a flag and the other is you can dive behind a thick concrete wall. I know which one you're diving behind. You know, they could put all the flags they want. They could put all the symbols they want on the border, but they would, they would only look silly doing that. So so no, I, I wouldn't say it's intended to be primarily uh, a symbol. I, I, I do think it's intended to be a, a physical barrier. But I'm wondering, I mean, surely you must see a real paradigm shift in the way we talk about walls in the same way as if invaders are coming. Surely you must see a difference between making a wall when, you know, Attila the Hun is outside and making a wall when migrant families, for the most part, are the people being kept out. That's a different issue, though. That's, that, you know, that's, that's not what you'd been asking about. You know, I'm just talking about whether it's intended to be a, you know, a, a physical obstacle or whether it's intended to be a symbol. And I think it's intended to be a physical obstacle. Right, right. And I get that. I, I'm just wondering, you talk about monuments to fear, and I'm wondering if you think that the different kinds of fear that that motivate the building of walls is worth mentioning or, or worth distinguishing with kind of a thick line. The ancient walls were primarily constructed for, as I said, military purposes. So they were constructed to defend against armed invasion. Interestingly, they were they often went up around countries that were uh, relatively open to immigration, like uh, the city of Rome, for example, was you know known for its high number of uh, immigrants at the same time that the empire by the second century AD was girding itself with long walls and other barriers on the frontiers. Now, that sort of border wall, you know, has been out of fashion for a very long time because of the uh, military obsolescence 
brought about by the coming of gunpowder and you know artillery and bombs and so forth. So it really doesn't make a lot of sense to construct a, a border for a military purpose at a time when there are drones and missiles that you know would not be affected by it in the least. So but certainly the the new border walls, the the walls of the the 21st century are are built for an entirely different reason, and um, that's why in the book I uh, you know I, I certainly do uh, draw a distinction between the two sections. Dave, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Joe. Thanks again to David Fry. If you're interested, please pick up his book. It's called Walls, A History of Civilization in Blood and Brick. You can find it pretty much anywhere you buy books. And thanks again for all of you for listening. If you like the show, you can rate and review on iTunes or you can support us on Patreon. Anything helps at all. Until next time.